Well, Steve, we uh, we survived the death hike, man. <laughs> the uh, the death hike, also known as the experience life hike, we survived. <laughs> I like that the experience life hike. It sounds much more granola crunchy. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah, it's uh, obviously the death is never the the true goal. We fully anticipate surviving. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, let's for. Uh, I'm sure most listeners have heard of the death hike and maybe have heard a little bit about what the plan was this year, but I'm sure some people are going to hop into this podcast and might not know what the heck we're talking about. Um, so I guess we should start with some, some background, some context. So essentially the death hike is something we've done every year for the past six, seven years. So Yeah. yeah, the whole you know, you and Lenny essentially seven years ago were like, hey, we should get some buddies together and just kind of pick a goal, see what we can do, go crush ourselves. And it's kind of evolved in the years since. And the whole idea is to have a different format every year, um, a different type of challenge and things like that. So, you know, in years past, having done a hundred miler and having done uh, all kinds of things, we this year, wanted to mix it up and it was honestly a reschedule of what was supposed to be last year's death hike that was kind of postponed slash canceled because of covid and uh roll out i guess steve what was the big idea for this year and what was maybe a little bit unique about this year new yeah i mean i think going back um to the beginning of it it was like let's find something that you know i want to say you think is impossible but it is very unknown and it started out with like how fast can we how many miles can we cover in like a 24 hour time frame? And, and the goal that first year was like hiking through the night. Like we started hiking at 7 PM and the goal is to get out the next day before 7 PM. It was like I don't know, 37 miles or something. And then, yeah. So every year I'm picking new challenges, new, new things to do of, um, and just so I get, get new experiences and, and, you know, sound cliche or corny, like break new boundaries, like, you know, open up things that I didn't think you could do, or I was just unsure of. And then, so this year, um, which was obviously originally scheduled last year was how far can you snowshoe? Like everything we'd done to that point had been summertime on dry ground. Um, like let's throw some winter conditions at you and, and see what you can do and see how tough it is. So, uh, yeah, that was the whole plan was, uh, originally we're going to do like a route from McCall, Idaho to yellow pine, Idaho, uh, up and over some mountains. And then, um, we had the whole, whole thing laid out and then probably back in not too long ago in, in March this year, I was like, you know what, you know, let's make this that much harder. Let's take a foot, a plane, a plane flight right into the middle of the Frank church wilderness and, uh, and fly out or fly in and then hike back out. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's what we ended up doing. Flew in there, flew uh, two different groups, landed at two different airstrips with roughly the same endpoint. You, your group was like five miles different than my group um, and and had three days to get out of there. Uh, and that was the goal. And, and that's what we accomplished. Yeah. So, yeah. As we mentioned, it was kind of originally planned to snowshoe last year and that changed. And as you said, the flight variable of flying into the Frank and getting dropped off and your only way out is essentially to make it out on foot or I guess put your tail between your legs, use a satellite phone and call for another pickup. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Hey, like come back and get us, you know, um, that 
and as you said, that that change didn't happen very long before the hike. And I feel like that really changed things like in people's minds, right? Yeah. Um there's there's been times before on death hikes where obviously you get to some point where you're covering miles and you're in the mountains and you're you're putting yourself away from a road. Um so you may be twenty miles away from help or from a road. Um but literally flying in and getting dropped off feel, especially in the Frank, I mean, it's just such big country that feels like a whole new challenge. Did you, I guess I, I feel like I noticed that create more like questions and anxiety in guys before the hike. Do you feel like that? Was yeah. I mean, it's as close as you can get to, you know, as you and I have been fortunate enough to experience is getting dropped off in Alaska, but you're just you're freaking out there, man. There's no, there's no way out, but, but on your feet for this one. Um, and yeah, it definitely, it just ramps things up. It's, and you start doing the whole pack your fears, right? Uh, cause you're like, man, you know, we're, I could be back there for a while. What if this happens? What if that happens? Uh, and so it's very tempting to start packing all this extra gear for the just in cases. Um, and, uh, and then get a pretty heavy pack. So that's, that was one thing that was unique about this year is we were at, with the basically snowshoes, the kind of unknown of this could be a four day event. Uh, so for food and then just the, the temperatures, you guys experienced minus two degrees on Saturday night, um, where we were at, we were probably like eight. Uh, so very, very cold. Everyone's packs were 45 to 50 pounds. And that was, you know, throw that on with snowshoes, you know, hiking through, you know, on top of 10 feet of snow at times, um, that threw a, threw a new challenge at it for sure. Yeah. I definitely felt that way. I mean, I, um, I don't know. I wasn't nervous about this hike, but as you said, there's just a lot of unknowns and variables that I'm not used to. And honestly, that was my favorite thing leading up to the hike. Like I was excited about the fact that I felt like in some ways I'm unprepared for this or, at least questioning things because I don't have as much experience snowshoeing. I don't have as much experience winter camping like that remotely. Um, Mm -hmm. So to me, that was like super exciting, you know, intimidating a little bit, but really exciting. Yeah. I mean, I, I I have this rule that I try to do uh, and it's like every year I should at the very, very least do one thing that makes me like, nervous uncomfortably nervous um and uh so far this year that, this is the first one that's happened because it was there was just a lot of variables there man like um like i said individually for myself was i you know i was nervous excited but just as a group you know we got uh there's 24 guys in total uh we had two two groups that flew in and another group going from a different route where they drove um you know just nervous for like everyone getting out safely and, and, you know, what challenges were going to present themselves. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was cool. Yeah. So one thing that, uh, was kind of fun just to kick off the story as we arrived to, uh, Sawtooth Aviation Friday morning, who was flying us, uh, nice and early. And the whole plan is to fly in Friday morning and then start hiking right away Friday. And I feel like right off the bat, there was, even though you had spoken with them about our plans and about things, <laughs> I feel like there was like these last minute questions of like, what are you guys doing? And is this possible? And I, I'm fully like expecting to show up and like, we're good to go. Let's throw gear in the plane. And it, 
there was conversations yeah. I was overhearing with you where it was like, <laughs> I feel like there's not pushback, but like questioning of, of the plan. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they had questioned when I called up and said, Hey, this is what we want to do back in March. Uh, um, the lady was like, what? And then she put me on with like the head pilot there. And he's like, he's like, are you, you think you, you know, he, he was very like questioning. Like, I don't think that's possible. Um, and I took it, you know, I took it seriously. Cause he was, the guy flies over that area a lot and knows what it looks like in the winter. Um, but I kind of went over the routes with him, and, and, you know, he basically was like, I, yeah, I guess, you know, uh, <laughs> it's feasible, I suppose. Um, and then, yeah, when we got there, there was another guy, another pilot who was just, he just grilled me, man. He was just like, you guys, you said you're for effing, you know, he had plenty of cuss words involved there. Like <laughs> you guys are effing crazy. I don't know what you're thinking. Um, and I told him the routes and, and again, he was like, it made me, he was like, okay, it's possible. You know, uh, I mean, I think he was 90% convinced that they were going to come pick us up on Sunday at the strip. So, um, yeah. And then there was, uh, there was on the way out, there was some, on our route out, there was a couple big avalanches, I guess that happened over the winter that had blocked one of the roads. And so was the, there was this potential, we're going to have to walk an extra like 10 miles at the end of it. And. And, you know, I was like, oh, that's not a big deal. Like, we'll just freaking walk it and we'll be fine. So um, ended up, we got super lucky and they'd cleared the avalanche out just like the day prior and didn't have to do that. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. So, you know, as you said, Steve, there's essentially um, one group, Russ Meyer and some some of his buddies that were kind of doing a, a separate thing. Um, they drove in and were hiking a totally different route. So in terms of you and I and the re- the majority of the guys and um, everyone flying, we had two groups, uh, for lack of better terms, we'll call it my group and your group. Um, so yeah, you guys were going to one trailhead, one location, and it, you guys took two flights to get everyone essentially at the same time though, like flights that were essentially back to back, right? Yep. Yeah. We just took, we were in two Cessna 206s. There was eight of us. So four four guys per plane and all our gear and we flew in there and landed and just within about you know ate some ate a snack right there at the strip and then started hiking yeah and then for my group we had one larger plane um and then had to wait for one of the 206s that flew your group to then come back um and myself and dan Solzman stayed back we couldn't make it on the first flight so one of the 206s that dropped you guys off, flew back, picked us up, and then met us up with our group who was essentially waiting for us at the trailhead. So I think, I feel like by 10, 10, 10.30, like we, our group was hiking or starting to hike from the trailhead. Was that a, about the same for you guys? No, yeah, I'd say, I think we were hiking by 9.30. Okay, yeah, yeah. Like we so landed we at behind you. nine and then, yeah, time we kind of warmed up and made a snack and got going, it was probably 9.30. Yeah. So good early start on Friday. Um, you know, we're, I guess in this podcast, we're not going to tell every story. We'll hit some stuff from a high level and we're going to do a follow-up podcast with some of, uh, some of the guys who are on the hike as well, just to get their perspective. But really for this one, we wanted to get something out shortly after the hike for you guys who've been wanting to hear about it. And then we're going to, in addition to the uh, the story, we're going to dive in and kind of answer the questions that have come up online and in emails and things like that that you guys have sent us but um i guess from day one perspective and again we have two different groups two different perspectives we weren't together steve so we'll hit it uh separately but for my group 
day one was pretty uh, straightforward. I don't want to say easy. Like we did good miles. Um, we ended up covering about 21 miles that day. Yeah, I think starting from 10:30 in the morning, and then we were essentially uh, at camp at seven or 7:30 that night. So hiked most of the day, covered good mileage, um, but really had good trails the whole way. We knew that the first mm, like 13-ish miles um, would be good trail, but then we were essentially making a turn and going up a different creek drainage that we were a bit unsure about. Um, we weren't sure how high the water levels were going to be. We weren't sure um, what the trail conditions were going to be up that drainage, even though there was quote-unquote supposed to be a trail there. Um, Sometimes there just isn't, but we lucked out and the trail was essentially good for that entire first day. And essentially we crushed 21 miles feeling, feeling pretty good. So day one, there was honestly kind of no drama. There was no snow. Um, it was all lower. It was actually incredibly warm that day, or it felt incredibly warm hiking the miles. Um, so day one was uneventful. I felt like at the end of day one, we had hiked. 20 miles to essentially start the death hike like i feel like okay now tomorrow is when this really becomes a death hike uh yeah. and as we'll talk about day two like <laughs> i didn't realize what what type of death hike that was going to be but uh <laughs> day one was relatively easy for our group nice uh we're pretty similar story i knew uh we landed we had three miles of like good along the main river and then then we went up a canyon that was Oh man, I think for all the way to the back was like 18 miles and, but we were going to turn off at mile like 15, um, up, go up a different Canyon. There's basically a, a low point of a saddle up, you know, thousands of feet above us that I thought, uh, wouldn't be, you know, wind drifted in with snow and we'd be able to get through it. Um, and yeah, we, the first three miles just cruised and we turned up the Canyon and I was expecting like anytime I've been in the Frank, the trails are very hit and miss. Sometimes they're okay. And sometimes they just don't exist anymore. And I think they're historically there's some old trails on you know that even show up on onyx and, and usgs quad sheets and stuff like that that just aren't there so i really didn't know what to expect i'd done some digging on google earth and you could see like remnants of the trail it just didn't look super nice um but we turned up uh up the, the canyon and it really wasn't bad we probably covered eight miles pretty fast that was pretty good and then then we then we forked off to another uh, where two smaller canyons met up, forked off to the right. And then the trail just instantly was like, okay, like, you know, we're probably mid afternoon of the, of the first day and like, okay, now the, now the hike begins, like you said, and we had three miles. It was pretty rough going It's all old burn. Um, and just, yeah, like the trail was gone, uh, really just rocky. If it wasn't rocky, it was like just that loose kind of powdery soil from when the fires burned that hot. Um, and we kind of cruised through that three miles, just picking our way through it. Uh, the, unfortunately, uh, the freaking ticks were ugh, like just <laughs> horrid. <laughs> like, I was yeah. pretty much kind of like, uh, carving the path through it, leading the way the whole time. So I was picking up the vast majority of them and on day one, I, I had to be somewhere between two to 300 ticks. I, I was flicking off my legs. Um, you know, so yeah, it's just it's there's still uh well as you can attest you just still found one in your gear after you flew all the way back home yeah uh, 
but yeah, so we, we uh, kind of chipped through that area and then the trail never really picked up, but we dropped, ended up the trail had, when we could find it, it had dropped into the bottom and the bottom kind of got a little bit wide enough. It was like 50 yards wide from, you know, where the Creek was running and there was enough snow down there that we just started, we just slapped the snowshoes on um, and we're just uh, walking through it. And we were, we were actually kind of, it was like, you know, you'd be in four feet of snow and then you'd be on dry ground and then two feet of snow. And then, uh, but it was just easier to strap the snowshoes on. Cause the, it was only probably 50 degrees that day. But like you said, it was, it felt like 90 just down in that Canyon. There was no wind. The sun was beating on you. Um, and I was, I was actually kind of disappointed because like between the ticks and the sun, like I basically was just like hood on, you know, sleeves all the way out, uh, and just head down, like, trying to carve a path like you can never once like felt like i could look up and like look for wolves and and look just check out the scenery it was just flicking ticks off me the whole way and and just uh getting through that as fast as we could but yeah we we dropped in the bottom strapped the snowshoes on probably did a couple more miles um and then it was about like eight o'clock we uh i wanted to go a little bit further but we found just a great camp spot you know just protected from the wind um you know good flat spots good firewood so we just uh, uh, set up camp right there and um, made a fire and set up the tents. And man, we just kind of laughed and joked around and told stories and picked uh, more ticks off of us as we were finding <laughs> them crawl up our freaking pants and legs. And yeah, um, so that was day one. Yeah, he, uh, day one was definitely, and we, we knew this was going to be the case going in, but it was definitely the best opportunity for hunting. Um, you know, guys were packing rifles and had wolf tags and, in, in parts of the Frank, um, bear season was even open. And so we knew that day one, just the way that we were covering country in the country we were in was gonna be the best hunting opportunity. And for our group, we, we actually, from our landing strip spotted some elk and bighorn sheep, which was cool. Um, we, sh- we saw some very fresh wolf sign within 20 minutes of hiking, um, but didn't, weren't able to locate those wolves. And at the end of night one, uh, literally just before dark, we glassed up a pretty good bear, but it was, oh, it was across a ways for sure. It would have been a heck of a hike. And <laughs> we even dialed turrets and got, got a scope on them, but light was fading fast and there was debate on shooting it. And that's probably a story that we'll tell with some of the guys that we get on here, uh, for the podcast. But uh, yeah, I totally glossed over kind of the hunting aspect of day one. Oh, um, yeah. 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 Which yeah, I was, knew, uh, obviously, as I said, we, we didn't cover that. Like, uh, basically we had at least, um, six rifles, you know, I wanted everyone packing rifles cause bear and, and, and we didn't know actually bear was open until like a couple weeks prior, uh, but wolves was open. Um, and, uh, they're definitely there, man. We were on wolf tracks the entire time. Uh, mm-hmm. they were, they were never super fresh, but they were in the melting snow, like couldn't have been two days old. So they're, they were there. Didn't your, I feel like, or no, that might've been Russ's group that heard some wolves too. Yeah. That was Russ's group. Um, the, the first day they heard them. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first night didn't, you know, where we were at, it didn't get too cold. I think it was probably maybe upper twenties. Like it was definitely below freezing. Um, but not cold compared to what night two was going to turn out to be um you know we essentially camped that first night at the head of a new drainage that we had to go through and fully knew that there was no trail um up this canyon and it was about 
eight miles long. Um, and so I'm, you know, I was kind of telling the guys like, Hey, all we have to do tomorrow, all we have to do day two is cover eight miles, maybe 10 miles. Um, but we knew that some weather was coming in. We knew that winds were going to pick up at the end of day two. And so it was really like, I wasn't saying it was going to be an easy day, but I was kind of like telling the guys like, all right, let's not kill ourselves today. We don't have 21 miles to do. We just need to do eight to 10 miles. And, you know, we know it's going to be tougher because there's no trail, but that's the goal for the day is just to get up into this point, you know, get up to the head of this canyon, gain some elevation and find a good spot uh, with some shelter and protection for what was supposed to be some higher winds that evening. And so day two, we knew it was going to be tougher, but at the same time, I feel like everyone was super optimistic. Um, and as we left camp in the morning of day two, you know, we had been looking and trying to make decisions of, do we go up the bottom of this drainage and, um, or do we try and get up on the ridge? But really, I mean, it's a pretty narrow canyon, very steep sides, and the ridges at the head of the canyon where we started just didn't, they don't move cleanly in a direction that we wanted to go. They would they would start moving in the right direction and then skirt out and then there'd be this massive peak and we'd have to either go over that or around it. And there's just no clean way. Um, but then we're looking at the bottom and it's like, well, the bottom, the bottom kind of sucks too. Right? So <laughs> essentially the, the consensus among the group starting day two was there's no good way to do this. Like there's no clear strategy. So let's just start covering ground and adapt as needed. And uh, we got super fortunate and started on what was some sort of little game trail or little pack trail, uh, but that only lasted maybe a half a mile. And then it essentially turned up a side canyon and went a complete direction we didn't want to go. And so that's when we truly went off trail. And I remember taking our first break, um, probably, two, I can't remember if it was like two hours in or two and a half hours in, and we had not even gone two miles. Like, I think we had gone a mile and a half in two hours, or two and a half hours, um, which was crazy. I mean, we had just crushed 21 miles the day before. Uh, the group that all the guys I was with were very fit, very capable, very experienced, and yet here we are starting the day by going not even close to a mile an hour. Um, and so that first break, we were just like, whoa, we feel like we just worked very hard and went absolutely nowhere. Um, and so that was, that was really the start of day two. And I mean, honestly, the story of day two is that continued, like there were among the nine of us, we would keep breaking off into like little pockets, like two guys would go here and then you'd have four guys there and, you know, three guys here and, we kept trying to figure out like what's best. Like, do we go up the bottom? Do we stay on this side? Do we go to the other side? And it, what was so funny is you'd have guys who are like hiking up the right side and side hilling through loose rock and just terrible stuff. And you'd see guys in the bottom and for a minute you'd see them and it looked like they were cruising up the bottom, no problem. But those guys in the bottom are looking up at us going, man, we should be up there. And everybody kept thinking the grass was greener on the other side. And everybody kept thinking that it would better be better to be there than here. And as we bounced around, like 
we just found out that there was no good answers in covering country. Like it, the bottom was super thick and brushy, and then you'd come to this super narrow point in the canyon, and literally, like at one point, we had to like slide through some rocks. Um, the right side was um, south facing, and so it had had less snow, it had more sun exposure, um, but it was just very steep, very loose, very rocky. And then for a while, we bounced off to the other side of the canyon, the north-facing side, which had some more snow, but it was more timbered, a ton of deadfall, just constantly going over deadfall, through deadfall, walk and balance beams. Like there was just no good answer. And day two, what I, and I heard this from multiple people that, you know, there was guys in my group that had been on many of the death hikes previously. Um, and day two was probably the most mentally taxing and frustrating day of any day on any death hike for many of these guys. Um, it wasn't the highest mileage day. It wasn't, you know, the necessarily the most physically demanding day. Didn't necessarily have the most like physical wear and tear on your feet. Cause you're not, you know, it wasn't a 30 mile day, but just the constant mental struggle of frustration, of sliding, of literally never taking a step on anything that remotely resembled flat or stable ground. Um, Like it was just a butt kicker of a day. Um, And we can get to the end of it here in a bit, but essentially we spent hours and hours and hours just slowly covering very frustrating miles on day two and it it really took a toll on the group and we went from thinking all we have to do is you know get up this get up eight miles of this canyon and get to camp like we went from like thinking okay we need to pace ourselves today to then going getting midway through the day and three quarters of the way through the day and legitimately thinking, I don't know that we can make it eight miles today like we might camp in the bottom of this canyon instead of getting up into the saddle. Um, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a tough day for sure. Yeah, we were basically similar. Like I I knew we, you know, I didn't think that it was going to be as easy as it was to get to night one camp Uh, and it was physical, but what not terrible. And then we woke up and we had about a mile, like I said, to get to where we wanted to go. And I was expecting that to be kind of rough, but we actually like the, the, the old trail was kind of up a couple hundred feet on the right side of the canyon and, and there was just it was super rocky to where the trail was still like flat and carved in there and so we pretty quickly covered a mile and then it was time to go up the canyon and i knew we had actually flown over this coming in uh, and i'd slightly like changed the route just being able to physically see it uh, i was like man i think we can get up that canyon it's it's you know it's tight and narrow the bottom looked like it was five feet wide in spots, you know? Um, but he, you could see, we could get the first probably third of it without, um, uh, well, the snow was in the bottom, but not on the sides. Um, so, but it looked like we could make our way up it before having to strap on the snowshoes and then just keep falling all the way up. And, and we got, um, lesson learned strategy wise was basically it kind of worked out that both of our big climbs were right out of the gate in the morning. Uh, and because of the temps, you know, for us, night one was, it was pretty cold. I mean, I had my Nalgene full and it was, 
not solidly frozen, but it was pretty much an ice cube inside of it. Um, and, and the snow was just so frozen on top that we were able to just walk right on it. So we started walking up the, the, um, Canyon and just one thing that I had planned on was if the snow wasn't there, it'd be freaking miserable, AKA what you guys had on day two, but we were fortunate. There was about five, five foot, six foot of snow that it was literally right over the top of the deadfall. Um, you know, you could just see, you're just every once in a while, the logs would be poking out and stuff like that. Uh, and so we kind of just had the snow path going up this Canyon started out, got the first like mile or so done pretty easily. And then it started getting really steep. And one of the th- gear th- pieces that I've owned for a while, but haven't really used is those Catula micro spikes. Um, and it got to the point where it's like, okay, I think it's time to throw these things on. Like we don't need the snowshoes, but it's like, it's frozen and we're just kind of going up and down and up and down these, you know, it's just a little 20 foot, like vertical, near vertical climb, you shoot up and then you climb, drop back down to the Creek and threw those micro spikes on. And man, they were amazing. Like it was just this, just confidence inspiring traction where you could just, just kind of freaking just cruise through that stuff. So we, we did that for another couple hours probably. And then all of a sudden, um, I'm going to say it's like noon, one o'clock. We just start, you know, I just take a step and wham all the way down to your crotch. <laughs> like, <laughs> Son of a, I'm like, okay, that must've been a soft spot. And then two steps later, wham, drop down. It was like the snow had just melted enough to where it was freaking, um, just, you know, it went, it went from floating on top of it to literally post hole all the way down to your crotch, like every third or fourth step. And, but we were in this tight little Canyon and you know, it's like, ah, crap. Like it is, uh, all of us have experienced like with the snowshoes on, you basically need to go like straight up or straight down, like side hilling with snowshoes is not terrible. No, it's just terrible. Just, you feel like the snowshoe is going to break your ankles going to snap in half. Uh, it is not a pleasant experience, but we had to put them on and there was really no, like it was so kind of steep on the sides that there was no choice but to just work your way up to the bottom of it and so i slapped him on and man probably went literally like 400 yards and i'm just like dude this is this sucks (laughs) like i don't know how how the heck we're gonna keep going and so i i try to take him off um to see like okay is post holding up your crotch every four step better than this um (laughs) and basically we just kind of chewed our way through it i took him off and and man like at, we were also climbing elevation. So it was like a, getting a little bit colder and a little bit less sun exposure because how the ca- Canyon laid out. So it was like, as I kind of climbed, it got a little bit better and better without the snowshoes on. Um, and, uh, yeah, basically just, we we're able to keep chipping our way out. And, and that was probably the hardest point of the death hike for us was getting up that Canyon that day. And, um, we kind of, uh, got up in there and then came to this really cool little, basin valley that's like man i'd love to be back here in september you know there's not a lot of elk in the frank church but if there was a place they were going to be this little spot looked awesome to hunt you know we took a break there and then um we had another 1500 foot push to the top uh and um i don't think no yeah we when we just kept kept going with the micro spikes on and uh chipped our way up there and then eventually got to where we had to put the snowshoes on and uh and just like put the, the uh, heel lifters up on the snowshoes, which those things are freaking amazing. And just 
just chipped our way up to the summit. Uh, I think we got up there about three o'clock, I'd say, uh, some, some in that time frame, and took a, took a good break. And, you know, at that point we'd gotten pretty, pretty spread out. Like, um, me and Nate were up in the front and then there's the, the rest of the group was, you know, 45 minutes behind us, but took a good couple hour break there. And, and then we had to drop down this slope, which I wasn't too nervous about. I knew it was going to be steep, but as far as like avalanche type prevention, um, there, I thought there was enough trees that we were going to be in the trees and just kind of pick our way down. And, um, it ended up being pretty comical, which yeah, maybe we'll, we'll get some, I won't go into it, but we'll get some of the other guys to tell the stories. Um, made our way down and then, and got to like night one or night two camp by six 30, I think, uh, wasn't too bad. It was kind of like, but we were at that point, we get to the the base of it and I'm looking at the hill and it was like a 2,500 foot climb, just, you know, basically right at the, the base that started of where we we're going to camp. And it was like, could have, we could run up there tonight, but you know, the sun was and off, off and on. It was kind of a cloudy day, but I, I knew we'd be post holing and it'd be rough. So I was like, well, we'll just camp right here. And then, and then figured we had about, you know, I thought we had 12 ish miles to go for, for the last day, but it was pretty much going to be all snow, you know, the whole way out. I thought it could be really slow going. I was, I was tempted to push us up to the top, but decided just to let everyone rest and crash right there for night two. Yeah. Yeah. Big lesson for me on day two. Um, and it's like, it's these things you already know, but it's just a reinforcement of, I guess, not doing things. We, you know, as we talked about before with pack weight going into this because of the cold weather conditions, because for our group through the most of day two up until the end, we weren't wearing snowshoes. We had that extra five pounds strapped to our back. Like we essentially did a lot of miles in very steep terrain off trail through deadfall, through rock slides and all that with 45 plus pounds. And to me, it was just like that big stark reminder um, of, you know, we talk about pack weight and keeping lightweight gear, especially in conditions where you're not just hiking a smooth trail. Like what a big difference that makes. I mean, the difference on hiking with 30 or 35 pounds and 45 or 50 pounds is a massive difference um it's much bigger than the 15 pounds it sounds like especially when you're in those conditions and uh that was just like you know that that made things that much more difficult to not only be in in that type of terrain moving those miles but doing that with that type of weight versus you know an early season lightweight three-day pack that may weigh 25 pounds or 30 pounds um yeah, it just kind of reiterated to me, like, as you know, as we talk about gear on the podcast in so many contexts and talk about being light, it's not light for the sake of being light. It's really makes a massive difference in the field when you're putting miles on with how much weight you're carrying. I mean, it's just, it's like a stark reminder of, holy crap, that's why I'm always trying to have a light pack, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I was, yeah, same boat, man. It was like that extra. To me, there's, uh, yeah, it's like 30, 35 and to go to 50 is a big jump. And then for whatever reason, like the difference between 85 and a hundred is a big jump. Like 85, mm-hmm. I, if I, if it's, you know, I seem to be able to kind of pack that weight regardless of the distance, you know, 10, if it's 10 miles out packing, but you got decent terrain, it's not a big deal. 
Um, but you get over a hundred and then it's like, yeah, this, you know, it just takes a different toll on the body for sure. Yeah. Yeah. For us, the, you know, getting towards the end of day two, we're getting up to the head of that drainage, um, you know, the end of the Canyon. And it was a steep climb by this time we had put on the snowshoes for probably the last mile and a half, um, maybe two miles, um, finally in enough snow where we needed them fully. Um, we essentially had to finish the day with a long climb up into a saddle where we were planning on making camp. Uh, we knew that it was going to be very cold that night and that everything up there had already been frozen. And so we essentially made this long, steep climb um, in snowshoes, having also stopped to get a bunch of water, fully anticipating that tonight we're probably not going to have a water source. And then all of day three, we're going to be on snow um, and may not have access to running water, or at least unknown access to running water. So, you know, after doing all these days of, you know, the steep rock slides and the deadfall, we essentially ended the day with an extra heavy because we were carrying so much water. Snowshoe climb up to the saddle. Spirits were not low, like nobody's crabby, but definitely guys were quiet, right? Like it's the end mm-hmm. of an exhausting day and it just happens where the groups get a little bit quiet. But we made the climb. We uh, found a good spot that was tucked up in the saddle and had a little bit of timber um, and went to set camp for night two. And, you know, it was one of those things where probably new experiences for a handful of the guys where you're now setting camp in, in a ton of snow. And so, you know, the top layer still pretty fluffy. We were using a shovel we had packed to kind of dig out beds for shelters. We were stomping down areas to compact them, you know, using our snowshoes and really just kind of getting, getting camp set up took extra work because of the conditions. Um, and just, you know, funny stuff of, I, I dug out my spot for my shelter, kind of tamped it down with the snowshoes and then took the snowshoes off and was walking around setting up my shelter and stakes. And like, you just forget that you're on this giant snow drift. And I stepped literally two feet away from my shelter and just dropped down to my crotch. Um, <laughs> so it's just, it's just, just those little things that make, make it interesting we luck actually lucked out and had it was running like four feet below um the surface but there was like this little trickle that was running up there so guys were like taking their jet boil putting at the end of a trekking pole and like reaching down and scooping up water um so we ended up having access to water which was nice and kind of frustrating that we had backed up like i think i went up there with four plus liters of water anticipating everything was not going to be accessible um, but yeah, I mean, guys honestly settled in for night two and we turned in pretty early. Everyone was exhausted. And then as soon as you could kind of get camp set up and get the stove roaring to, um, you know, to make a dinner, guys turned in pretty early. And then, you know, as we said, it was negative two that night. That's what we woke up to. Um, everything was frozen, like beyond frozen. Uh, you know, what, one of the things one of the new experiences for me, I woke up at the morning of day three after night two, and I just had to go to the bathroom so bad. And I did not want to get out of the shelter. And uh, my boots were so frozen that I literally could not get them on. Like I couldn't flex them. I couldn't 
loosen the laces any more than I had the night before. They were frozen solid. And so my morning started by boiling water in my jet boil to then pour boiling water on my boots to essentially thaw them out enough um, to get my feet in my boots and then uh, had the, my first experience, experience pooping on snowshoes. So, you know, there you go. You're, you're always seeking to have new experiences. And it was funny. I put my snowshoes on to like, you know, hike a little bit away from camp and find a little bit of privacy. And I found this spot that I thought was pretty solid snow. And so I'm getting ready to do the deed and I undo my one snowshoe thinking I'll be okay to stand, uh, just in my boots and literally undo my snowshoe, step my right foot out put it down on the snow and immediately just dropped my crotch. And I'm like, well, apparently I'm doing this with snowshoes on. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's just those funny, you know, those funny little things of like new experiences of, you know, literally pulling boiling water on your boots to get them on then going to poop in snowshoes. And then just even little things like that morning, taking my shelter down. Um, You know, one thing that was a big question mark for me gear wise and, you know, was trying to figure out was a shelter for this trip and what options should I go with and comparing different, you know, should I take a freestanding tent? Should I just do a bivy and a tarp? Should I take what I ended up taking, which was uh, like a trekking pole supported tent uh, from Gossamer Gear called The One, and uh, it requires some stakes. And, you know, w- looking at even that, like using snow stakes, like blizzard stakes and then looking at alternative methods to stake things out such as like putting our snowshoes down and tying guy lines from my shelter to my snowshoes which i did as well but um i realized that the whole technique of burying a stake in the snow packing some snow on top of it uh, and then letting temperatures get below zero that night like i donated a stake or two to the frank church because i literally could not get them out they were just frozen in so It was just those little fun, you know, things of like, oh, next time or, you know, you just learn these lessons because it's it was newer conditions for me. And that's that's part of what I love, man. Yeah, it's definitely something that um, is my goal with, you know, current, you know, current future death hikes is just keep finding new ways to expose guys to things that they haven't done before. um, Right. And just because that's how we learn and grow. You know, you're just going to find new ways. There's definitely plenty of things I learned on this hike that I'll apply to hunting next fall or this fall. Um, so that's, uh, it's awesome that, you know, we're all, we're all able to experience those things. Yeah. Well, we're talking about some of that, Steve, let's, um, you know, part of what we wanted to do in this podcast, we're getting along on telling stories. Um, and we'll tell more with the other guys in the future, but wanted to answer some listener questions. So let's hit pause and do some of that. Um, some of the listener questions are about pack weight, which we covered. Essentially, everyone ended up being roughly between 45 and 50 pounds when you yeah. are accounting for, you know, all food, water, clothing, um, a rifle, snowshoes, all that. Um, you and I, Steve, didn't pack a rifle, but we were essentially carrying extra safety gear for the group, uh, snow shovel, extra rope, extra fuel, extra food, all that. So, yeah, pack weight was 45 to 50 pounds. And as we discussed, like you, you definitely feel that, um, especially when you get off trail. Um, we had questions for sure on shelter. Um, as I mentioned, I use the Gossamer gear tent called the one. Um, there definitely were concerns on what I was, 
what was going to be possible to stake out based on the snow conditions, how frozen was the snow, how deep was the snow, all of that. Snow stakes do work well. Steve, we had um, looked at and shared some options on alternative staking, um, you know, such as doing like a dead man in the snow. As I mentioned, having snowshoes, I used those. So you essentially put them in the snow vertically and tie guidelines to that. So um, that worked well. I mean, um, relying on stakes was a concern for me, but it ended up with the snowshoes, with the snow stakes, um, and with some techniques. If needed, like a dead man, um, it worked well. But what what else did you see in terms of shelter? What did you use? Anything that stands out from anyone in your group of what did or didn't work well shelter wise? You know, everyone, yeah, everyone's shelter option worked fine. Uh, I ended up going baby sack and tarp. I've just been. Um, I had a, my hunch was there's going to be scenarios. There was going to be hard to find flat spots. And that's where I love a baby sack. I can just throw that thing literally anywhere. Right. It takes like two seconds to kind of, I'll like lay my blow up my pad, lay it on the ground and be like, okay, this is the exact area I need to make flat, set that aside, kick it out, throw down the, the, the baby sacks. That's what I did. Night one um, was just the baby sack um, kind of had some, overhanging tree limbs that were you know they're actually higher than i'd like but ideally i just like find a nice tree well uh, with some overhanging you know pine branches and crawl under there and, and just sleep great i i think i actually uh, sleep warmer in a bivy sack than i do inside a tent just because it's like you know it's an extra layer right around your sleeping bag to kind of hold all the heat in um versus a tent if you don't have that on top of you and you potentially get like a wind draft that's coming you know, under the, the fly of the tent into there. Um, so for warmth, it wasn't a consideration. It was just, um, I was worried about like last minute, the, the, uh, weather forecast was like looking great. And then the two days prior to the trip, all of a sudden it was like, you know, gusts in the 30 to 40 mile an hour wind Saturday night. I'm like, Oh crap, that's gonna, that's gonna suck. Um, and that made me really rethink bringing a tent, you know, cause that's when I want it. That's when you want that full shelter is like, if you've got to be exposed on a ridge, you can't find a way to get out of it. Um, the tent is super handy for that, but I went baby sack and tarp. Um, literally everyone in my group just had a whole gamut of, um, you know, a tarp, tarp, trekking pole, tarp tent setups, um, full on just self, uh, freestanding tents. Um, Jake has, I had an older, um, big Agnes, um, fly Creek, which that was a really a great tent choice for that trip. Super light. Um, doesn't need a lot of space to pitch freestanding tent. Um, that worked great for him. Um, yeah, we just kind of had a whole between the eight guys. There was, you know, two guys, me and Corey with baby sack tarp setups and everyone else had just different variations of tents and really everything worked fine. You know, it's, it's kind of, um, you can overanalyze that, but it's like when you're in the field, you just figure out how to get it done, right? Like if your 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 stake isn't sitting in the ground tight, you you start looking around for a big rock you can tie it off to or whatever. You just like you're gonna make it work, um, and everyone just made it work. It wasn't a big deal, like like you said with yours. You you ended up saw pictures where you're using your snowshoes as as tent anchors, you know, um, and they worked awesome. Like you just we we're very um, adaptable people and just figure it out and yeah, so. Yeah, the only from our group, it, it was the same. It was a mix of everything from 
my shelter to a bombproof Hilberg to lightweight freestanding tents uh, to one of the guys who had a tarp uh, and regretted it just because he didn't get good ground coverage. And we ended up, it was both cold that night as well as snowing as well as windy and the wind kind of kept shifting directions and so mm-hmm. <laughs> it was dan Solzman, and he like woke up at one point or i don't want to say woke up i think it was right before he went to bed but literally set up his shelter because the wind was blowing a certain direction and then the wind shifted and then all of a sudden snow is literally blowing through the gap between you know his tarp and the ground and so now he's <laughs> like taking his boots and his pack and trying to create like a little drift wall against having snow blow on him. So, uh, yeah, that was like kind of the only, I think regret I heard was dancing. Ah, I wish I would have done something like with a floor and with better coverage and all that. Definitely the downside of the tarp setup is in that. Yeah. That exact scenario. Yeah. So yeah. And then sleep system. Um, I ran the same sleep system. I essentially always run, uh, my catabatic quilt, which was a 20, it's a 22 degree quilt. Um, the pad I've been running all of 2020 is the Nemo Tensor Alpine. Uh, I forget the R value on that, but it's in the fours, I believe. So pretty warm, but not crazy, like full on winter pad necessarily warm. Um, and I stayed very warm, even in that uh, n- negative two night. I slept with my hiking pants on. Um, the first light on puffy pants, um, on bottoms. And I was actually legitimately at one point woke up in the night and thought, I wish I could take these puffy pants off, but I didn't want to deal with it. Like I was truly warm, warm. Mm. Um, and then on top I wore just my base layer and a Arcteryx, um, Arcteryx synthetic jackets. I had my puffy um, and didn't even wear it in the sleeping bag and didn't need it. So that's I crazy, was, man. yeah, I was like pleasantly surprised at how warm I stayed. I've had that bag, uh, even though it's rated 22, I've had it into the upper single digits, I think is the coldest maybe. Um, but this was legit, like a, li- a little below zero and happened to sleep great. So just a beanie on the head and was cozy. Um, and no one really... I think everybody kind of had a different bag different strategies i know some guys were running like zero degree bags some guys were wearing you know a ton of clothes really everybody it was cold but everybody stayed warm there was like no major oh crap moments you know i'm mm-hmm. i mean a popsicle um and again like that's that's just a good lesson is it might sound insane to go sleep on the snow in zero degrees but with with decent common sense like it's kind of totally doable good common sense and the right gear it's like you can stay quite comfortable it's not i mean the biggest thing would be like wind kicking up that just really you know the wind chill can make it miserable but it's um you're smart about your shelter campsite location it's not that bad man yeah and i would say i think it does depend on your activity level like leading up to sleep Mm -hmm. we had been hiking all day your body's cooking um you know metabolism's firing you're you're pretty warm it you know, if you're sitting out in glassing all day and it's 20 degrees and windy and you're already chilled and then you're going to then camp in those conditions, I think you need to take some extra um, steps there to get warm um, before you go to sleep. That might be taking a warm drink. It might be, you know, like guys were heating up their dinner and keeping it 
between them and their jacket to create some core warmth. Like there's little things you can do like that um, that really can make a difference to kind of help you get off, to get started on the right foot, right? If you're going to mm-hmm. start the night cold and chilled, you're probably going to struggle to to get warm or to stay warm through the night. But in this case where we had been active all day, um, it, I think it's easier to then stay warm through the night. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, well, we hit clothing. I guess we'll, let's talk about, because we had questions on that, what we were doing to hike in, what we packed and all that. Um, yeah, even in the cold temperatures, even on day three when we started and it was freezing, um, once you're moving, you're warm, period. Um, you know, day one, we were down the bottom of the canyon. As you said, Steve, it was probably in the 40s and 50s maybe. Legit felt like it was in the 80s. Um, I just wore a super lightweight synthetic sun shirt and regular hiking pants. Um, and that's it. And then even on day two, it was colder. It was breezy. Day three, it was colder. We were in the snow. I was just wearing a super lightweight hoodie. Uh, I was alternating between that synthetic one I mentioned, which was from outdoor research and then a first light wick. Um, so a lightweight Merino hoodie. Um, and that's legit all you need when you're moving. Um, so yeah, it, honestly, it's again an area where probably we we're prone to overthink it. But um, clothing's pretty simple. You just don't want to get sweaty. Um, and so the whole strategy here for me personally was to hike in light layers, and then when you do stop to take a break, just have a light jacket or a mid layer, something very accessible in the pack. So that as you take a break and stop before you get cold, just throw on a layer and stay warm while you're stopped and then dump that and get moving again. Um, Definitely packed rain gear, didn't end up needing it. I packed both tops and bottoms. Again, I just feel like it's the Frank, (laughs) it's potential winter conditions. Like I just don't know. So I did pack rain bottoms and rain top, didn't use it. Um, I packed warmer gloves like the Brooks Down mittens. I never touched them. Um, some other guys had them on the trip and used them. The only gloves I used were like what you mentioned all the time, Steve, a simple pair of rag wool gloves. Um, I used my beanie to sleep in. Yeah, I mean, that was it. Like clothing was pretty simple, you know, base layer, mid layer insulation. And that's all I used, just like honestly what I use most of the year, really. Yeah, I was, um, yeah, most of the guys in the group packed puffy pants and a, and a heavy puffy jacket. Uh, I went with uh, basically instead of a heavier puffy jacket, I went with that stellar one that I wear and I, I decided to go with extra base layers that I could keep dry. So the thought was I brought an extra wool base layer that once we got to camp, I had this completely dry shirt to put next to skin and then i'd put my the layer i'd been hiking in all day that was going to be wet from sweat like on top of that and then my puffy jacket on top of that and and i was really happy with that strategy it worked great for me so i could kind of once i stopped moving i got that wet layer off me but it was still in between the layers so it would dry out you know Mm -hmm. um and then i didn't pack puffy pants but i did pack i have some really lightweight rain shell pants and I never, and I intended those to be insulation, um, basically like a, a wind barrier, and that worked great. So the the few times I'd get to a summit and stop and sit down and take a break and, and wait, um, I'd zip those on and just kind of I'd 
make sure I did that right away to kind of keep the heat in. Um, and it, it was, a, it worked well. So, um, yeah, I just had, uh, and then, so I just had long johns, my prana pants I ended up going with, um, which, well, that was surprising how well that worked. It was basically so cold when you're in the snow that everything just was frozen instead of wet. Um, so you didn't need snow pants or anything like that. It was just, uh, it was basically either dry ground and hot and sunny or by the time we got in the snow it was so cold that nothing was melting and you were never wet so it didn't really matter um yeah that's what I, it was pretty simple setup man it was lightweight and worked great i think and then i was deb- debating between i have a super lightweight like 25 degree quilts um, from enlightened equipment and puffy pants or i brought my colder 10 degree quilt and no puffy pants i think if i was in a hunting scenario i would have went with the 25 degree quilts and and puffy pants because with the intention that i'd be sitting for hours glassing um, but i knew that wasn't going to be the case you know um we we're just moving all day long so i decided to go with the lighter or the heavier quilt and no puffy pants that was the the lighter of the two options right yeah um, for sure and uh yeah for me it worked great so yeah i um you know, one thing I did on this trip, I kind of mentioned at it, but it was kind of the first time for me doing this is you mentioned a lot of guys packing like a real heavy puffy. So something like a first like Chamberlain, um, which is a great piece, very warm. But to me, like those things are like so warm. Like, yes, they're great when you're truly not moving at all. But I was kind of curious, like, is there going to be a situation where I want some level of insulation? But also some sort of movement or even when we stop at the end of the day and I'm setting up camp, like, is that even going to be too much insulation while being like call it lightly active, right? Like setting up camp and moving around. So I mentioned I, uh, that, uh, Arcteryx piece I slept in, um, which is synthetic as the Atom LT. I had that. And then I had the first light Brooks, which was like an ultra light down piece. And so essentially instead of one massive, like, a first light Chamberlain or something like that. I had two insulation pieces that were both lighter and then I had one down, one synthetic. Um, and that's not something I'm going to do all the time, obviously, but for this type of trip, I actually really liked that to be able to have some insulation or to almost double up on insulation with two lighter weight pieces. And then I really just liked the, the versatility of having a, a down piece and a synthetic piece because part of my thought in that was if I ever get wet, like in my base layer, whether I'm just truly sweaty or we get caught out in rain, I want to have that synthetic piece to kind of warm me and even kind of create that internal warmth to dry out a, a wet base layer while wearing it without exposing the down, right? And so, again, this was like kind of a new thing for me, but I kind of really for like that for cold weather hunts of almost two light insulation pieces that give you some more versatility versus one massive one. Yeah. I think, um, one thing that, that this is something that I've been doing for a couple of years, but, uh, I think it's a really good idea to buy a scale. <laughs> now you can buy one for 10 bucks on Amazon, you know, and then just start weighing these pieces so you can make more informed decisions. Like, um, I know Corey in our group did the same thing as you, he packed two base layers, but, uh, two puffy jackets, like lightweight ones, but w- weighed them. And it was like, the, these two jackets are lighter than this one big one. Uh, and it just gives me more versatility. So if you're sitting there trying to make these gear decisions, like I did with the sleeping bag and pants and puffy pants, you know, run through those scenarios. It's like, well, this is 10 ounces lighter. If I go with this setup and I think this is going to work better. Um, so I think it's a good, 
to get you as backcountry hunters, we, you got to pay attention to weight. You just, you, like we were talking about the difference between 35 and 50 pounds is, is, um, pretty substantial when you're moving through the mountains like this. Um, it's just really important to get, uh, you know, you want to be comfortable, but you also got to be mindful of weight. So having that scale to make those decisions, make informed decisions, um, Mm -hmm. is definitely a helpful tool. Yeah. Steve, guys will uh, guys who have history with the podcast and your your interest in boots will crack up. I had to crack up because <laughs> the the morning you know we leave your house Friday morning very early to make the drive up to the airport uh, for the charter flight, and Chris Horton's picking us up, and literally we have gear loaded in Chris's truck. It's running. We're getting ready to walk out the door, and I see you standing in your garage with a foot on your a boot on your left foot and a boot on your right foot. <laughs> two different boots and i'm like what is he doing and literally we're walking out the door and you're deciding which boots to bring uh so yeah that's that's the a steve move right there <laughs> what did you end up bringing and how did you like it and i so i brought those um comp- I, I never heard of them until last fall but uh, it's the brand is called aku or aku aku um found them just searching around on the internet one night um ordered up a pair with like yeah i don't who knows if these are going to work or not, but you know, worst case you're out 15 bucks to return them. Um, and they looked nice enough and, uh, yeah, they've been, um, they took a while to break in. The sole was just stiffer than I like. And they're, they're still, you know, it, this is not a September boot for me. Um, maybe take them on the sheep hunt this year, uh, because you, you know, that super shaly rocky stuff, that little stiffer sole is nice. But again, they may also make you a little bit more clumsy than a, than a more flexible shoe. Um, but yeah, it was that or the, the Hanvog, um, mocker treks, um, which we had sent to us and I'd, I'd gotten them fairly broken, but I was basically, the decision was like, we, I packed out your bowl and those, uh, Aku's as the 10 goo light, um, and had great, like my feet felt great. I didn't get any blisters. So I was confident in that my feet were going to be fine. I thought they were going to be cold and wet in the Aku's and in the Makras, I was like, I know my feet are going to be warm and dry, but I'm not confident in um, uh, and how my feet are going to feel. I just hadn't put enough miles in them and they weren't, I don't think they're fully broken in yet. So I went with the comfort, right? Like let's, I'd rather have wet, cold feet without blisters and hot spots than the unknown variable of the, of the other boots. Um, and they performed beautifully, man. I, I, I'm not convinced they're like, it's hard to tell between sweat and water getting into the shoe, like which is happening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just hard. Like you, you could sweat more than you realize. So you pull your boots off, and your and your feet are wet. Your socks are damp. Is that moisture leaking in, or is that just sweat? Um, I sweat a lot, and and know that there's certain circumstances where my socks can be very damp just from sweat. Um, but my feet were never wet. They were just damp at times, and and I brought. Basically, I threw in three pairs of socks, so or two extra pairs in the pack, and and just kept a pretty good cycle of rotating them during the day. I just halfway through the morning, pull them off, you know, whenever we take a break, and I put them on the back of the pack so they could just put them on the strap so they kind of hang back there and dry, which ended up being a, a tick collecting machine that I figured out <laughs> later in the night. <laughs> Another story, um, but uh, yeah, it, the strategy worked great uh, for the most part. Kept. Um, dry comfortable feet and and they performed beautifully for me so yeah yeah i did wear the um the makras from hanvag uh that you mentioned that you were debating on and i had been putting miles on them so i was just super confident in them period 
Um, that's, I mean, I, I think I've only been hiking with that boot and have done all my training hikes in that boot for two, two months, probably leaning up to this. Like, um, once I got those and had good first impressions with them, I just stuck with them and have had zero issues. Um, so yeah. And they, they performed great on this hike. I mean, it's, it's always, I get it. Like, it's so funny on these hikes because you're, most of the guys are constantly taping their feet or fighting blisters or doing all these things. And that's, that's honestly normal for putting anyone in these situations. Um, but having tried as many boots, I guess, as we have, Steve, and having the opportunity to go among so many options, like it's really reassuring to find something where legitimately you come out of an event like this with zero tape, zero blisters, zero issues. Um, yeah, that's, that's impressive. It's nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. rare, I think, but it's nice to be able to do that. So, yeah, those Hanvags definitely did that for me. So Steve, we hit boots, I guess, uh, you know, we should probably talk snowshoes, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, dude, I, you, I will let you hit this, uh, a bit more than me because you essentially guided me on snowshoe choice a year plus ago when we were planning on doing this in 2020. Um, but for folks who like myself, honestly, were new to snowshoes, maybe hit like some of the high level stuff to consider and then talk about specifics, uh, in terms of models and things like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, we definitely learned uh, learned quite a bit. The, the probably the most important thing that all the snowshoes really there's two features they needed to have. One is this sounds weird, but really good traction on the bottom. Um, if you know, there's a lot of snowshoes on the market that are just like as you'd imagine an old school one. Um, this, there's like a little cramp on where the toe is, and the rest of that's just a flat deck. Uh, purely designed for just flotation right um the when we're obviously on this adventure we're uh going up and down and side hill in and you got icy snow powdery snow soft snow you know wet snow just kind of everything in between and so you really got to like flip the shoe over and just look how much traction's on the bottom of it uh the um we ended up going with a bunch of guys had them the msr lightning ascents uh, and they were really fantastic. Frankly, they got traction, like the rails all around the perimeter are got like, you know, teeth to it. And then there's three bars going across, like basically from the behind your foot all the way to the back. And then you've got a really beefy kind of cramp on spikes there that are underneath your toe every time you step down. And that, that was absolutely critical. There's a couple guys that had some shoes, um, and we didn't see it as much on the hike, at least in my group just because of how the terrain laid out and the snow conditions when we were going downhill. But a couple guys did have uh, snowshoes that probably had about half of that on the bottom. And they're definitely like skiing and slipping and sliding, you know, when you're going the, down the hills. So mm -hmm. traction was really critical for that type of adventure. If, if you're just like walking up, you know, super powdery flat road, uh, you know, I don't think that's going to be near as important, but definitely for this, it was. Um, and then two having the heel lifters. So a lot, a lot of these shoes, they have a little bar kind of comes in different formats, but basically that lifts up and, and just kicks your heel up about three inches off the deck. And when you're climbing, uh, it was, I frankly, frankly loved it. Um, you could, it was just like walking upstairs. If you had that kind of moderate slope, not too steep. Um, and it definitely, you couldn't have them up when that was like near flat. Cause it was just awkward walking, but 
when you have that, you know, I'm going to say 15 to 30 degree slope, they were just fantastic. You just put a clip them up and then just kind of chip away. Like you're walking up steps. And I learned that just taking baby steps, you know, like taking about half the stride was like the ideal way to do it. Like the maximum kind of energy expenditure. Cause you never, you never know what the snow is going to do. And so if you take this big step, and all of a sudden you break through, you've got like all your weight invested on that leg versus still having some on the other leg where you can kind of balance yourself out. So, um, yeah, those two features were, were huge, um, length of shoe definitely mattered. And, and obviously that correlates to body weight and pack weight. Pretty much everyone was right around 30 inches, 28, 30. Um, some guys had like shoes that were 25 inches and then like msr has like a five inch tail you can add to the back um that seemed to be a good combination you could kind of bounce back and forth like our, our day two when we had to put the snowshoes on getting up that tight little canyon in the bottom um you know that bigger shoe is just hard to navigate hard to turn and and um you know just when you're side hill and you just got more that's more that's resisting digging into the hill. So it's tweaking your ankle more. So that wasn't a bad combo, but um, I just ended up going with the straight thirties and yeah, I was really happy with how it worked out. Um, yeah. Everything was great. We didn't, uh, so we never had that. Like I kind of want to go do this adventure again in like January when you're talking about like powdery soft snow uh, just to see how they would handle that. But um, overall super happy with the choice uh, that MSR lightning ascent we used yeah, likewise. Um, but I just don't have any other experience, right? <laughs> like, I don't know what to compare it to, but they were great. And I could see, just seeing some of what the other guys had, um, I could see the benefits to the lightning ascent and everything you said, especially on the traction. And that came in, honestly, it came in really important for us on day three, the final day, um, which we didn't really talk about in the story yet. But for us, we we were essentially descending almost all day. Um, so there were some steep descents. There was a fair amount of side hilling. And then we got into several sections where it was just like these little draws that were, you'd drop down and then you'd literally climb up something almost vertical. Um, mm. And with, you know, pretty solid snow, but still having that traction in the snowshoe, like you can kick into what's almost a vertical wall and kind of climb it. Um, and again, I'm, when I say vertical wall, I'm not talking like we were, you know, climbing a sheer face, but it, you just have like these little banks and you drop through this bottom and then you'd have like this five foot, almost sheer straight up. Um, and even Creek crossings, we ended up doing, I don't know how many, uh, Creek crossings on day three and the first number of those we did in snowshoes. And so you'd essentially have the Creek and then the bank of the Creek would just be a vertical wall of snow. Um, and we would just keep the snowshoes on actually worked really good for, uh, kind of gripping over larger boulders. Cause you have those crampons and the teeth around your feet. And so we were just doing Creek crossings and snowshoes and then that vertical bank, uh, climbing out. So yeah, that traction was big. And then, uh, as we got lower in day three, there was several sections we did where you'd go from snow to no snow and we would just keep the snowshoes on because it'd be a shorter section you know maybe 20 or 30 yards but you're essentially climbing now over rocks and roots and barren ground um, and some of that was still either climbing or side hilling um, so having a a nice burly snowshoe that could do that was really important as well so. um, let's hit food and hydration um, something we've talked a lot about on previous death hikes 
uh, I feel like even with, you know, when we first synced up with Kyle Camp, it was before the 100 miler, for example, and talked about that. Um, food, I don't know that would geek out on. It, for what, what I did, Steve, I didn't, uh, just because I was like short on time and overwhelmed with other things, I just essentially packed by calories, but didn't get too picky on like macros. I was just thinking, what's going to sound good uh, to, you know, to keep me eating? What's going to do decently well? in the anticipated freezing conditions, etc. cetera. Um, I've packed between, probably between like 4,300 calories, maybe up to 45. It's a little hard to say because some of my dinners were homemade and so I don't have the exact calorie count there, but um, I absolutely burned through all those calories, ate everything, and it was enough, but I probably would have ate a bit more if I had it. That said, I didn't feel under-fueled. Um, what I would personally have liked to have was maybe just a little bit more, um, in terms of powdered calories. So some of the guys were drinking tailwind or tang or things like that, where you're just kind of getting some carbs as you're getting hydration. Um, and it obviously boosts your calorie count. And I think that would have been good to add to my, my solid food in terms of hydration, I just did the noon tablets just to kind of keep some electrolytes going and flavor up the water a little bit. And I was really diligent about that. I probably, uh, probably seven to eight noon tablets like a day. Um, and I would just make sure I went through all those and almost drank all my water, um, with those. So because of the freezing, I was only running the Nalgene I didn't run a bladder. I had a, a bag for a dirty bag, uh, but I was drinking straight from an algae, and so I would just kind of keep noon in that almost all the time. Hmm. Um, but yeah, for you, food, hydration, anything related there? Yeah, pretty much the same story. One thing I did um, that I've never done before, I don't know why, is uh, use the MyFitnessPal app to like preload a day's worth of food in there, and then you can click on the nutrition and see what your macros were. Oh, yeah. um, and I did... It was cool because I did it and I realized like, whoa, I'm way low on protein, even though I thought like, you know, through all the stuff I had that I was going to have plenty of protein. So it helped me make a few decisions um, where I beefed that back up, right? Um, took out some fats and, and basically added in some proteins. Um, but it was cool. Yeah, I, I think I ended up packing about 5,000 a day, give or take 4,800 to 5,000. Uh, I did not need to eat at all. I was probably eating four a day. Um but yeah, I'm, I'm glad I packed the extra stuff. I mean, that the problem with this hike was the the snow conditions and the trail conditions were going to dictate, you know, I, I think it could have for us on our route, I'd say everything went right or as good as could have been. Um, if, you know, two or three of those things had gone the opposite direction, it would have been a drastically different hike. And I guarantee I'd have been eating every, every drop of those calories. So um, glad I packed them. I've been on hikes where, um, man, our second death hike ever in the Frank church where we ran out of food, you know, uh, and you're, you're starving and shaky and you still got like this day on our last day out of there, we had this monster 6,000 foot climb and, um, we ran out shortly into that. And that was, uh, I remember me and Tyler and uh, Brad were like, literally had like one, Trader Joe's like coffee packet <laughs> like, <laughs> had like creamer in it. We literally like split that thing, you know, like a whopping like 80 calories that we split to freaking, you know, just give, give your body something. 
Um, so it's not fun to be in that situation where you run out of food. Uh, so I definitely wanted to pack extra and then yeah. hydration pretty similar. I, I, the only thing I did was to me, the noon tablets are, this may sound silly, but they're pretty heavy. Um, and so I took one little package of noon tablets, one tube, uh, and then I just had salt pills and I made sure one thing I did and was pretty diligent about was in my hip out pouch on the pack. I kept, um, I kept the salt pills and I kept some snacks, uh, in my chapstick. So I always had that keep and sunscreen to those kind of things that I knew were like maintenance you know, like make sure I'm getting sunscreen on, make sure I'm taking salt pills, making sure I'm kind of keeping my carbs and sugars, uh, going while I'm hiking. So I always kept that in my pouch. It was really easily accessible and I didn't have an excuse not to take them. Um, and then, yeah, so I had noon tablets that I think I just put, um, in a stash pocket in the water bladder sleeve. And, uh, and I, that's same as you, I just probably, you know, I went through like three or four a day and I would just wait till my Nalgene was half full, drop, drop a couple in there and then, and then just drink them. Um, so yeah, it worked great. Um, I didn't have any complaints there. The same thing with you used, a, you know, I'm a huge water bladder fan, um, but used the Nalgene on this trip. Uh, one thing that is first trip I've ever really used an algae much. And I did, um, I liked it in the death hike, um, scenario because you just drink. It's so much easier to consume water, right? Like it's just, it's easy just to chug freaking 10, 12 ounces real fast, where it's kind of hard to get that much out of your water bladder. Um, and for the most part we were, you know, we only had a few sections where there wasn't a running Creek nearby. Um, so it was nice just to, to, uh, and another thing I tried was, um, obviously been a huge Sawyer fan, uh, Katadyne came out with a filter and I don't, I think it's been maybe out for a year or two called the be free. Um, and I tried that on this trip. I debated between that and getting a Steri pin, you know, cause I knew there was going to be these little creeks running at spots. And I thought a, a Steri pin, one of the guys, AJ packed a Steri pin and it was money, man. He just dumped his nalgene in the creek fills up in about you know one second and then steri pins it for 90 seconds and he's got water to drink and um it was a it worked really really well for just that kind of drinking on the go and not feeling like oh i gotta stop and fill up the dirty bag and squeeze that all into my bladder you know just that extra time so um it uh, i was impressed with the steri pin and then very impressed with the be free it was um it was super fast flow rate compared to the sawyer um, the bottle, it comes with like a soft bottle. That's got like a much wider mouth on it. So it was really like three times as fast to fill that up in a Creek versus like the standard Sawyer size, you know, like your typical drinking water bottle size. Um, so definitely going to keep playing with that and run that, you know, on, on bear trips, this spring and scouting trips and see how that kind of long-term holds up. But, but so far very impressed with it. Um, and then one thing, yeah, you and I talked about, we were actually kind of talking about on the trip, a couple guys kind of, once we left the big river, just stopped filtering water. Just like, ah, this is all spring snow runoff. It should be fine. And, and, you know, I was like kind of into day two, like, yeah, I'm tempted, but I've already filtered to this point. Why stop now? It's not that hard to do. Um, but we talked about getting an expert on the podcast of like, is there times when it's okay not to filter, you know, like, is it where your risk is so stinking low that it's, you know, you don't need to bother with it. Um, I just don't know. I've pretty much always err and default to, I'm just going to filter no matter what, just to be safe. But maybe that's, uh, maybe somebody who knows like, yeah, that's ridiculous. There's no reason to filter when you're, you know, it's April and you're literally in snow melt off, you know, at 8,000 mm -hmm. feet in the mountains of Idaho. So, um, yeah. 
I'd hope they'd maybe say that because yeah, I stopped filtering. <laughs> what, <laughs> Did you? Once we were up, yeah, I mean, once we were up in the snow and it was, you know, it was just like hot. Ah, At one point, I remember like the end of day two, we were literally just straight from snow melt. We're super high, and I my filter, I had you know kind of shaken it out from earlier in the day and dried it out, and then I knew it was gonna be insanely cold that night. I'm like, ah, I don't want to get my you know filter full of water again. Worry about freezing. Worry about cleaning it out. Plus, I was just tired and lazy, and you know you're standing there looking at this water source that in my head I'm like it's got to be okay, right? <laughs> uh, and plus, it was the end of day two, so I was like, well, if I get sick, it's gonna be after the hike's over. So it is what it right. is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I just don't know, man. I, I, even if you're up that high, is like. Like we came across uh, a spot where there's definitely a mountain goat, and um, mm-hmm. so we didn't see him. But there was a set of big tracks and two-ish sets of smaller tracks, so a nanny and kids maybe. And um, it's like, well, I don't know if one of them got wiped out in avalanches in the creek right above you, like that dead body, you know? Like I don't know. Like that's is is there? A... And then to me, it almost makes more sense if you're in down low in the big river, um, like the you know, if there is something, the parts like parts per million, right. would be so, so small, so dispersed that, that, uh, how could you get sick from that? So I don't know. Yeah. I'd love to, um, get an expert on here and talk to him about it. Yeah. And I feel like for liability's sake, almost anyone's going to tell us, Oh, it's better safe than sorry. Just filter. Like, I feel <laughs> well, like yeah. in the end, like that's right, going to be the yeah. answer, but it would be well, fun to talk about what the risks are, where do they yeah. come from, where are the risks higher, where are they lower, right. And all that yeah, exactly. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll have to make that happen. Um, yeah, man, I, th- I feel like we hit big categories well. I guess uh, to wrap things up, anything that you feel is just like a lesson learned that we didn't, you know, kind of already hit or talk about? Mm, I have to think on that. We'll recap that yeah. when we get to the next one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, for me, the, yeah. the stuff that comes to mind is just like the new the new experiences like dealing with the freezing boot like truly truly frozen boots and pouring water over those like i mentioned just the little lessons on retrieving those snow stakes that get buried and then ice packed overnight um little things that came up like it was funny we were at the airport uh before we flew out excuse me and uh russ meyer mentioned to us he's like dude are you guys packing extra trekking poles like maybe just a an extra pole or two for the group and we're like oh no maybe that's a good idea, but now nah, we're good. And then yeah. I think two trekking poles ended up getting broken within our group. And, uh, Dan Solzman was one of those. And we essentially took one of the snow stakes, which are, you know, pretty big and then like have this curved profile to them. And it fit really well to essentially use a snow stake as a splint, uh, and then wrap that around the two pieces of the trekking pole and splint it and tape it together. So, little field repair there and then dan yeah. used that thing for two more days so that worked well um so yeah just those little like for me those little experiences little lessons learned like those are always fun to pick up and carry into the future for sure yeah yeah that's what my biggest takeaway from it um you know physically it was not the hardest death hike we've ever done so i was like for my group i was a little disappointed right like it's the death hike is supposed to be the hardest physical thing you'll do all year long and i know like fairly confident going back up to Alaska on, on the sheep hunt this August, like we'll have tougher days. Um, but it was just a cool new experience, you know, dealing with those cold temps, dealing with snowshoes on and off and um, just learned a lot from the trip. So that's uh, obviously a, 
another huge reason for doing the hike is to kind of get outside comfort zone and experience something that you haven't done before. Yeah. I think we, we've probably touched on both of these points throughout as well, but just as a, like from a high level and recapping it, is there anything on both ends of this, anything you packed, but didn't use, and then anything you didn't pack, but maybe wish you had. I don't think there's anything I, w- I was wishing I had. I had too much crap. Uh, like, but we're again, you and I were the gear guys for the group. So we each literally just kind of like filled the pack with nine pounds of extra gear just for the just in case stuff. Um, I, yeah, honestly, I mean, I was pretty dialed. I was, I really was. There wasn't anything. Um, I had, you know, some repair type stuff, duct tape, which gosh, we ended up using for something um that i was packing regardless um yeah there's i mean there's a few things you could have like taken a chance on but then it would have really bit you in the butt um and then essential gear wise yeah i just didn't have much extra man it's it's it was my clothing my baby sack pad you know tarp Mm -hmm. to stakes water filter i mean there just wasn't at the end of the day there wasn't much there so um uh yeah i don't have any regrets um things I packed or, you know, definitely there's nothing on the hunt. Like, ah, oh, I can't believe I, you know, <laughs> like or on the hike that I didn't like pack. It was, um, uh, pretty dialed. Cool. Yeah. As I mentioned prior, I think the things I didn't use were things I probably should have had anyway. Like I didn't end up using rain gear, but you know, on a trip like that, that time of year in the Frank, you're, it's smart to pack it. Um, yeah, the Brooks mittens, those down mittens, I didn't use at all. It could have easily got away without those. Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't too much extra. And then I think the only thing it like I kind of just mentioned on nutrition, it may have been nice to boost some some calories with like more powdered uh, drink mixes. But yeah, overall it was pretty dialed, and you know it's it's good, Steve. Like we said, to learn the lessons, but then it's also good to see that even in a trip like this, which you know, for a bit felt a bit daunting. When you come back to it, it's really the same stuff, man. Like mm. if you have some experience in the backcountry, you can translate that experience to new places and different conditions very easily because the basics are the basics. The fundamentals are the fundamentals. Yep. What's essential is essential. And it's like, you take this and then you take a September elk hunt or a September high country deer hunt and they're totally two different experiences, but 80%, probably more of what you need and what you need to know is like the same, even though they're two <laughs> drastically yeah. different experiences. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. We're uh, on the SNS archery side, Justin's working um, kind of on like a, a gear list to like sign up for the newsletter and we'll send you a gear list. And, we started going through it and I was like, man, we really need to break this down into uh, kind of different. It's one comprehensive gear list, but it's broken down into sections. And, and section number one is the essentials. Like this is with you no matter what, right? Scouting in July, uh, wolf hunting in January, like all the conditions, doesn't matter where you're at. These are your, like your core gear that's always there. And then you just have these like, all right, is it early season? And then you kind of have like layers for that, or is it late season or is it an elk hunt? Is it a deer hunt? You just have these little subcategories where, yeah, like you just have a, you know, elk hunting's like slightly different game bags, uh, reeds, bugle tube, cow calls, like the, that's yeah. like the three things like, and then less and on then the optics, optics change, side. right? Yeah, yeah. Optics change. And the mule deer is like, okay, obviously don't need any elk calls, but, um, tripod and spotter and tripod, uh, binocular tripod mount. 
um, those things kind of kick into effect where I'm going to pack those. So, um, but yeah, your core stuff just doesn't change. Yeah. Wrap that into, you know, listeners, what, what experiences you have and like, just go do the same type of thing in a different context. And I think you'll be like, you'll learn something like we learned a lot of little lessons on this, but you'll also, I think, walk away from it with confidence of seeing that you do have some experience and knowledge that can transfer into many different circumstances. Well, yeah, well, we, I'm not sure what the timeline's going to be, but we're definitely going to chat with some of the uh, other guys from the hike. We obviously had uh, many more guys than you and I, Steve, and maybe tell some stories, get their lessons learned, learned what did or did not work well for them. So stay tuned for that on the podcast. As always, uh, any questions for us, whether it's about the death hike, something we discussed, or just another question for a future episode, feel free to send us that email to podcast at exomontgear.com. And if you haven't yet, just hit that subscribe or follow button so that you receive the future episodes automatically.